At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Many of us often wonder if going to church is worth it, but what if we told you God has a beautiful design for the church that very much includes you? The book of 1 Timothy speaks to these truths, and if each of us submits to them, our church will function as the loving family God intends. Join us this week as we look at the answers to the question, Church, why bother? Let's dive into our text. There's a, a lot we got to cover today, <clears throat> and I'm super excited about it. But uh, we get to answer the question today in Second Timothy or First Timothy uh, two. Um, we get to answer the question today: What should Christian men and women be known for? As we look at Christian men, Christian women, what would what should we be known for? As men and women, over the past couple decades, <clears throat> there have been countless articles and books written um, on the subject of gender and gender stereotypes, and we've been inundated with questions like, what does it mean to be a man? How should a man behave? What does it mean to be a woman? How should a woman behave? <clears throat> and these questions show up everywhere, from university classrooms to even my, my kids' Uh, cartoons or kids' shows that they watch on TV. And when we look at our culture today and what they are suggesting for us, we have to ask those questions, but we have to try and answer those questions the best way we know how. A generation ago, many in our society and culture would have answered these questions by saying that men should be like John Wayne, right? Who loves John Wayne? Man, he was a cowboy, right? He was a guy that was a man's man. I know growing up, like growing up on the farm, my dad used to say, suck it up. You're a man's man. Be a man. And we get this picture or this stereotype of what a man should look like. Or, or maybe for women, it was you got to look like Barbie, right? You have to do your hair a certain way or be beautiful. And, and so people, there's this stereotype of what women should maybe look like and, and very shallow but no depth to them. And what we've done is create an even bigger problem by abandoning any sense of gender norms or seeing a difference or uniqueness between men and women. And the thing is, sadly, this, um, it's left so many confused. It's left so many people in our world today confused, confusion over what it means to be a man or woman and how we should behave, how we should conduct ourselves. But let's be honest, there's way more to being a man than what our culture tells us. There's way more to being a woman than what our culture tells us. And we want to do that today. We want to deconstruct these unhelpful stereotypes and so where do we find these answers? Where do we actually look for these answers? When we want to find truth, we always look to the Word of God. We always look to God's Word for the truth. Over the, the past uh, several weeks, we've looked at Paul's letter um, to Timothy, and we've entitled this series, Church, Why Bother? Why bother going to church? Why bother being a part of the assembly of God? Why bother being the church? Why bother doing this? And our hope is to show the tremendous value the church has for our lives. That when we are a part of a church, a body of Christ, when we are a part of that, it has value 
for our lives. As the Apostle Paul states in the latter part of 1 Timothy 3.15, the church of the living God is the pillar and foundation of truth. This means that if we're looking for truth on any topic, the Word of God is the best roadmap. It's the best place for us to actually go to find truth. And so Paul is writing this intimate letter to Timothy to help him, to encourage him, to equip him, to lead, and to pastor the church of Ephesus. And this was a, a pagan city where there were false teachers that we know, and not, they're not teaching the truth of the gospel. And so Paul... He wants to help Timothy as he shepherds this group of believers to discern what is right and wrong and to live in the manner that's honoring God. As one writer notes about Paul's ultimate motivation in writing this pastoral letter, the classic statement of this purpose is stated in 1 Timothy 3, 14-15. It says, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. In Paul's view, our faith in Christ should not only change what we believe, it shouldn't just change our doctrine, but it should also change how we behave. It should change our conduct and the way that we act our behavior. And as we've seen last week in chapter 2, in the beginning of chapter 2, the importance of prayer, as Scott came and shared with us, the importance of prayer and what it means in our life and the urgency that Paul puts on it, that as believers we should be known for prayer and how to pray and the people that we need to be praying for in our lives. And so today we pick back up in verse 8 through 15. Paul puts a great emphasis on how we should act or conduct ourselves. And as Christians, we should behave in a certain manner. In our world today, there are a lot of different things, there are a lot of different people that tell us of how a man and woman should uh, act or live or, or behave. And when we look at this passage correctly, it invites us to reject these false teachings reject the false teaching of the world, of of what culture says on the topic of men and women and how they should uh, behave or live. Basically, to reject the stereotypes. And so Paul aims to address both men and women on who we are in Christ and how we ought to behave now that the gospel has come to us. Now that we're believers, he wants to tell us this is how we are supposed to conduct ourselves. But I want to point out here, it's important for us to note that Paul is, is doing far more than simply just giving us this list of rules for us to conduct ourselves. He's not doing that. As writer Brian Chappelle puts it, on the deepest level, 1 Timothy is not about church order, but about the evangelization of the world. One's doctrine and one's conduct have everything to do with evangelism. Chapter 4, verse 16 say, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will have save, or you will save both yourself and your hearer. He's saying, now that you have the gospel in your life, now that you're a believer, now, now that you have a relationship with Jesus, it should change the way you act. It should change the way you behave. It should point people to Christ. It should point people to, to God. 
We should be radically different. It should change the way we conduct ourselves. So what does this change look like? What is the change that he's actually talking about here? These next few verses, um, they can and have been taken out of context by so many. Uh, But when we look at them through the lens of the person and work of Jesus, and in the proper context, they show us how we're supposed to live as men and women of Christ. And so the question that Paul takes up is this, is what should Christian men and women be known for? And his answer is twofold. The first thing he gives us in verse 8 is that men should be known for their spiritual passion. That men should be known for their spiritual passion. Look at verse 8. It says this, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Paul's first order of priority is to address and dismantle the false culture Uh, the the stereotypes that men are so often known for. Apparently, the men of Ephesus uh, were known for their anger and aggression and disputing, so he commands them to to abandon this way of living, to stop. And the word Paul uses here for anger is orge, which implies violent emotions that come as a result of unholy passions. See, the men of Ephesus were known for being led by their worldly desires, their lust, which ultimately drives them to anger and quarreling. And Paul knows that this isn't good for the church. He knows that this is going to be detrimental to the church. And ultimately, it would cause division in the church. And this is exactly what James expresses in James chapter 4, verse 1, when he states this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. It's our, world, it's our uh, worldly desires and lusts, our passions for worldly things. This seems that it's so far distant from us, right? The church of Ephesus, and when this was written some uh, nearly 2,000 years ago, and what was going on there in Ephesus and in the church, and it's sometimes we look at that and we're like, man, it's so far removed from us. But if you look at our culture today, if you look the way our culture is teaching today, it's literally a lot of things are identical. Isn't it true that the way our culture push men today is to be competitive and hypersexual, not really taking the care in how they act or, or behave. And what this does is it produces a society that conditions men towards disunity, violence, covenant breaking, and the exploitation of women. And we've seen it destroy families. I think we can all attest to that. We've seen it destroy churches. Some of us have seen this firsthand where it's caused division in families, it's caused division in churches, and it's robbed men of their God-given calling in Christ. And so Paul here, he strongly condemns this type of behavior in the church. But what does Paul say? Instead of being men known for anger and quarreling, Christian men should be known for prayer. That now that the gospel has, has come into your, your life and, and the gospel has come to them, now that you have a relationship with Christ, now that you're a believer and you put your faith and trust in him, that you should be known for spiritual passion. Lifting up holy hands and blessing one another through prayer. 
Paul wants them to be Christian men who are known for their holiness expressed through prayer. He wants them to be holy. And when we look at this passage, why does Paul address men first? See, God has entrusted men, we see this in the Bible, that God has entrusted men with the stewardship responsibility of leading our families and church through the danger of a fallen world. That that, that is what men are, are responsible for. Men are called to be leaders in their family, in their homes, in their churches, and, and there's no more important way to lead among the people of God than by praying for divine intervention. I want to ask you today, men, are you known for spiritual passion? Are you known for prayer? I think today, like, I started thinking through this of, like, what are men, like, how do we think, Right? I think as men, sometimes we think we're being a good dad or we're being a good uh, husband or we're being a great leader because we go to work and we provide for the family. We, we bring home a paycheck and, and we provide that and, and we come home, we take care of the house and, and we do all these things for our family and, and we're being a good leader, right? Those are all great things. But as I go to men's Bible studies and I go to men's retreats and you gather in these small groups of men and, and we talk about what it means to be a godly man and we talk about what it means to lead our families well and, and be a great husband and, and I find that the same exact thing comes up all the time. That we're like, man, I struggle with praying with my wife. I struggle with this, the fact that like, it's weird, it's awkward like, for me to sit down with my wife and pray. And why is that? Do we feel weak? Because we soften our hearts and pray as men? What is it that holds us back from that? Because I know I felt the same way sometimes. It's like, man, it's just like this, this thing that's hanging over us. And then we're like, oh, I, I, I don't know how to do this with you. We are called to be men of prayer and spiritual passion. We're called to lead our families well. We're called to be an example to our kids and to, to our wives of what it means to be a Christ follower. We have to embrace the call that God has given us, men, to be men of holiness and prayer who are known for spiritual passion and desire to honor Christ in all things that we do. Respected New Testament scholar D.A. Carson he wrote a book in 1993 on Christian leadership. In it, he uh, examines the type of leaders that help to produce healthy churches. And in contrast to those whose character and behavior ultimately lead to the demise of the church. And one of his uh, most famous quotes from the book is this. The ways of destroying the church are many and colorful. Raw factionalism will do it. Rank heresy will do it. Taking your eyes off the cross and letting other more peripheral uh, matters dominate the agenda will do it. Admittedly more slower or slowly than frank heresy, but just as effective over the long haul. Building the church with superficial um, conversions and uh, wonderful programs that rarely uh, bring people into a deeping, deepening knowledge of the living God will do it. Entertaining people to death, but never uh, fostering the beauty of holiness or the centrality of self-crucifying love will build an assembly of religious people. 
but it will destroy the church of the living God. Gossip, prayerlessness, bitterness, sustained biblical illiteracy, self-promotion, materialism, all of these things and many more can destroy a church. And to do so is dangerous. 1 Corinthians 3.17 says, If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred. And then he says, And you are that temple. Men, how are we leading? How are we actually leading our families? And there are a lot of things that can get uh, in the way of what God wants for us. As men, we can be known for a lot of things, and some of these things lead to temporary pleasures of popularity and fame or even fortune. And the sad thing is, is the world, the culture, rewards us for living this way. It rewards us for chasing unholy passions. But the thing is, is the Bible tells us that the approval of the world is mere fool's gold. Proverbs 14, 12 reminds us that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Men, are we known for these things? For chasing worldly, ungodly passions? Or are we known for holiness and prayer? Are we known for leading our families in holiness that help lead the church in, in prayer so that when the lost look in, when they actually come and, and look in on us, they see a difference in who we are? That's how we experience real, eternal, abundant life when our hearts are shaped by God's Word and the Spirit. After addressing the men, Paul now turns his attention to the women of Ephesus. And the verses that follow um, have been studied and debated by scholars for centuries. And again, many people take this way out of context. But let's do our best here to look at Paul's Word in the right way here, I love how um, Lauren Cunningham, she's the founder of uh, YWAM Ministries, Youth uh, with a Mission. She notes this, <clears throat> we must never judge a, a verse in isolation. Indeed, or Instead, we must look at the entire Bible to make decisions on individual issues. So that's what we want to do today. The first thing he says, men should be known by their spiritual passions. And the next thing we see is this, that women should be known for their gospel substance. If we pick up in verse 9, it says this, Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or, a, or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for, Ab, uh, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. There's a lot to unpack here. And just so you know, ladies, my security detail will be outside in the lobby with me <laughs> after this, so don't come attack me. But let's unpack this. I want to first point out that Paul begins his charge to women by saying this, one word, likewise, or in the same way. He's connecting it 
to what he just talked about with men. That in the same way women should reject what the world is telling them, the culture stereotype, and embrace the gospel perspective. That in the same way, likewise, they are to do this. No longer are the women of Ephesus simply to be known for their shallow and and fading beauty or their fine clothes, hairstyle, and expensive jewelry. Where he says, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. I want to be clear here. He's not saying, women, you really need to work hard on being ugly. You really need to work hard on, on taking a vow of, of, uh, to be poor and, and not have any of these nice things. Don't braid your hair. Don't take a shower. That's not what he's saying. He's telling them that they should be known for something greater. That they need to be known for something greater, again, because the gospel In their relationship with Christ, they should be known for their spiritual passions, not these materialistic things. They should be known as a woman of gospel substance, not shallow women or trophy wives who are beautiful on the outside but completely empty on the inside. They're women who are known for their good works, as it says in verse 10, which is proper or suitable for a woman who professes godliness. I love how Kent Hughes puts it. He says, everything in life is meant to enhance our carrying out God's desire for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, down to the attitudes with which we pray and the way we dress. I'll be honest, I'm married to a beautiful woman, and I don't know what she sees in me. (laughs) Um, I keep getting older, I keep getting uglier, and I keep getting fatter, really. I don't think she knew that I was going to lose all my hair and be as ugly as I am. And I look at her sometimes and I'm like, I don't know how you're doing it, but you're going backwards in age and you're getting more beautiful. And I'm like, I don't get it. How do you do this? But I don't want my wife to be known just for her beauty, right? Man, she she want, I want her to be known for her substance, her gospel substance, that she loves the Lord and she loves to study the Word and, and that my daughters would see that in her and that she would bring them up in the way of God. That's what I want her to be known for. But in addition, we see that their conduct on the way that they were dressed, Paul says in verse 11, women need to learn. Why does he say that they need to learn? Why does he actually say this? The implication here is that she's a disciple of Christ. And as a disciple of Christ, she is committed to learning the Scripture in order to properly understand the Gospel. Why? So that she can apply that to her life. Paul wants them to maximize their potential in the knowledge of God. Ultimately, We are all called, men or women, to make disciples, and if we are going to do that, we have to know the Word of God. We've got to know what it says. So Paul wants them to learn, study the Word of God, he says. He then speaks about the type of attitude or or disposition she's supposed to have as a disciple of Christ. He says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. What does he mean here? He's talking about those that have spiritual authority in her life. 
her husband or the elders of the church who have the responsibility to teach her and instruct her in the word. One writer notes this that's super helpful. He says this, it is tempting in a or tempting and in a Western setting perhaps unavoidable that something like a uh, repressive shut up will be read into Paul's words. But the Greek word that he uses here, and I'm not going to butcher it, means stillness, quietness, rest, rarely refers to a blanket prohibitive policy against spoken expression. This is attentive silence for the sake of giving someone a hearing. In the case of verse 11, that someone would be, that someone would be um, the Ephesian church leaders instructing the congregation and ultimately God or Christ who are mediated through the gospel as it is taught. The call then is not for total verbal silence from women, but for them to exhibit a peaceful and gentle attitude in their task of learning. See, the thing is, is in their culture, in, in that day, women were not permitted to learn or have any type of formal education, so this would have been radically different for them to hear. Paul is saying that Christianity has no place for misogyny. He says this with confidence because of the story, uh, we think about the story of Mary, where Mary sat at the feet of Jesus and, and Jesus goes in into the Mary or Martha's home and, and Martha, she's, she's trying to serve Jesus and, and she's serving him and she says, hey, Jesus, I don't know what Mary's doing. She's sitting down here listening to you. Can you tell her to maybe get up and help me? Like, help me serve. And what do we see Jesus tells her? Jesus affirms Mary. He says Mary had chosen what is best and that it would, be, or it would not be taken from her. When she sat at the foot of Jesus, as we see in Luke 10, he affirms her as she sits amongst the disciples and learns. And so Jesus here sets the course for the apostles and all who would later follow him to empower women through learning and to expect that her learning would produce good works and would bless others on Christ's behalf. See, Paul isn't trying to start a feministic movement here. He's saying that men and women both have the right to learn and are both disciples of Christ. The Bible communicates this, that men and women are mutually and equally esteemed in Christ. So what does this verse 12 mean when he says this? I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Don't throw anything at me. Tony Evans says that Paul is not calling for an absolute silence, nor is he forbidding women from using their gifts. Indeed, Paul allows women to speak in the church when it is under the proper covering of legitimate male authority, as we see in 1 Corinthians 11. So what does Paul restricting here. Craig Bloomberg takes up this question and provides helpful clarification by stating this, but if Paul is not prohibiting women from all forms of teaching men in church, and if he is not prohibiting women from exercising all forms of authority over men in church, what might the one role of authoritative teaching be that he has in mind? We do not have to look far for this to find 
a convincing answer. In the very next chapter of 1 Timothy, Paul addresses the leadership office of church overseers. It appears probable, therefore, that the only thing Paul is prohibiting women from doing is that verse um, is occupying, in that verse, is occupying the office of overseer or elder. Now, we're going to talk more about this next week as we talk about what it means to be an elder or a pastor or a deacon. We're going to talk on that next week, but let's remember that Paul is giving Timothy instruction for church worship gatherings, and we'll see how this uh, functions, how they function and how the uh, pastor or elder or overseer overseer, uh, teach the Word of God at gatherings. Now, They didn't have all the programs that we have today. They didn't have kids' ministry. They didn't have student ministry. They didn't have all these other programs going on. So the only application we can be confident about is that men are meant to serve as overseer, elder, and pastor. And they're meant to lead out the teaching of the Word of God in the church during the gathering. And that gathering would be like for us Sunday morning. So the pastor or elder plays a primary role in leading the church and discipling men and women in the gospel so that they can grow in the gospel, in the substance, and then go and teach the world, right? Then we see in verse 13 and 14 that should be read in light of verse 11 where it says, let a woman learn. Women should learn so that they can avoid deception. Really the same is true for men The same exact thing, but he says this, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a a transgressor. Paul refers back to Genesis 3 in the fall with Adam and Eve, and God could have created both of them at the same time if he wanted to, right? But he didn't. God says, It's not good for a man to be alone, so I will create for him a helper. See, Eve was created for Adam as a helper. They're in this together. There should be unity, and and this is the intended picture of the church. I don't know about you, but how many of you could survive without your wife? Not me. My wife does so much that there is no way that I could survive without her. She's my helper. She does things with me. We're unified. We have some great women in our lives. He reminds Timothy that while Adam had received instruction from God, Eve had not and was therefore vulnerable to deception. He's exposing the danger here that we're in if we're not learners. If we don't know and understand the word of God, how then do we avoid deception? How do we actually avoid that? Women should be known for their gospel substance. I bet if I went around the room and asked you of who are some great women you know in your life? I know that I would answer that question and I would tell you there's a lot of them, but my mom, she's one of them. I can remember growing up as a kid and I would see my mom and she would always, like, I'd come out of the room and and she'd be sitting at that table with her Bible open with about a thousand notes I'm like, my gosh, I don't even know what you're doing there. But I remember seeing her every morning, and she's praying, and she's praying for her family, and she's praying for her kids. And even now today, I bet you I could go to her house, and there would be that Bible sitting on her table, open. She 
committed herself to studying God's word. She committed herself to prayer. She committed herself to be known for gospel substance. And see, this passage is all about God's call on our lives as believers to conduct ourselves in a way that shows others that we're different. That we don't have to fall into the cultural stereotypes of this world. That we would be men and women of prayer. That we would be a church that's shaped by the gospel and not by culture. That, that the church would be a model of the creation story. And the order and how God intended it. And so men, it's time to step up. You need to lead your families as God's called you to. Be men of prayer that lead by example as your kids are watching. Women, be known for your gospel substance. Be learners of the word and disciple makers, helpers and supporters. And then church, let's be countercultural. Let's do away with the stereotypes and be known for the way we love people through the gospel. Friday night, I don't know if any of you had a chance to go down to the Troy campus and, and be a part of that praise and worship night. As we wrapped up a week of prayer that was super powerful. And there was a, a point in that night where we were praying for different things and, and I was standing in the back, I was standing by the back door there and we were challenged to pray for revival in ourselves. We were challenged to pray for our hearts, for who we are in Christ. And I think so many times we want to see others come to know Jesus and we want to be an outreach in our community. I'm the, I'm the most guilty of this. I, I love outreach. I love going out into our community and being a part and seeing the lost come into our church and get saved and, and see that transformation in their life. And I love that part of it. But how many times do we actually pray for revival in our own hearts? How many times do we actually go before God and say, God, I need you to do a work in me? I know standing by that door, I just kind of broke down. Because I'm so passionate about what God is doing out here that I sometimes forget that God needs to work in my heart as well. And so my challenge for you, men, are you men that are passionate about God's word? Are you men that are passionate about prayer? Are you known for that? Women, are you known for learning the word of God, for being of gospel substance? I pray that we as the family of God, that we as the church would be known in that way. Would you guys pray with me? Father God, I praise you for who you are. I thank you for your son, Lord. I thank you for the gift it was to us in salvation, Lord. God, I pray for each and every individual in here, including myself, that God, we would be men of prayer that we would give that example of what it means to be a Christ follower first in our homes and then in our communities. God, that we would be women of gospel substance that, 
Lord, we would be learners of the word, helpers. And God, that you would do an incredible work through your people. Lord, help us to follow you. Help it to never be about a single person or an ego. Help us to be humble. Lord, we love you. We worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.